This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Rob Connybeer. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Connybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. I'm thrilled to welcome my next guest, Buddy Arnheim. His name is Ralph, but he does go by Buddy. Everybody knows him by Buddy. I actually thought his name was Buddy, but Buddy, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me. It's great to be here, Rob. This is exciting. So just a little background on Buddy. Buddy Arnheim is absolutely one of the top lawyers in the venture capital industry. He's a partner at the global law firm Perkins Coie. He focuses his practice on representing emerging growth companies. So these are companies that are the future rocket ships and current rocket ships, venture capital firms, and other early stage investors. He's also a law professor and a Wharton alum. I am. So I will ask you, what, what year Wharton alum. Oh, this is such a dangerous question. Were you in Philadelphia for this, or were you an executive program for I this? was in Philly. I did undergrad, Wharton undergrad, graduated in 89. Oh, so you're super smart. <laughs> That's where the really smart Wharton I grads can are. I it. Well, you think about Elon Musk. You think about some of the people that have, have come, come out it is. It is over impressive. time. It tends to be the undergrads. Yeah, and I drag the average down for sure. Okay. All right. Well, let's start really, really simply. What what exactly do you do? What do I do? What, what does what does a startup attorney actually do? Yeah, I um, I think it changes day to day. In all seriousness, I um, I feel like I'm more of a psychologist than anything else. Uh, the day typically starts by meeting a bunch of entrepreneurs with ideas to change the world and uh, needing a little direction on how to get started, um, and then it goes from there to. Uh, talking with the CEO about a transaction that he, he or she is facing or closing a transaction that the company is trying to consummate, raising capital, selling some assets, buying some IP, dealing with employees, just sort of general whisper in the ear of the CEO and the board. So when people think of law firms, they think of big buildings with Greek columns and you go inside and somebody's been with the firm for a while, wood paneling, and it took them about 20 years to become a junior partner, and then they work another 10 years to become a senior partner. Are, do you sit behind one of these big desks? Because you talk about early in the morning, and the entrepreneurs, do they show up at your desk? Or where are you when you meet with these yeah. entrepreneurs that tell you this great stuff? Yeah, it's not a throne. They don't necessarily come down the red carpet up to the throne. No, I – look, Rob, you've known me a long time. I don't sit still. Um, and, uh, and I think there's a, a joke running into my, in my office about, have you seen Buddy? Because I'm really not in the office that much. I mean, my job is on the road, in boardrooms, at companies, um, sometimes at conferences. But, you know, in, move, in motion. And I think it's part of the – uh, the ecosystem of Silicon Valley and the startup culture that, you know, you so you're out and about. So when you talk about meeting the entrepreneurs in the morning, that's at a breakfast spot yeah. somewhere or a diner or. I'm a big breakfast or hike the dish guy first thing in the morning. Those are my two favorite times to meet because they're they rarely get interrupted. So for people that are in the Bay Area, they know what hike the dish is. Maybe you could describe yeah. hike the dish yeah it's a magical it's a magical experience so stanford has this open space property on which it situates a bunch of um a bunch of satellite dishes and uh and you can walk there are two main trails one's about three and a half miles the other's five point something miles um so you meet at the front gate with a partner a friend a prospective client what have you and you talk, walk and talk for an hour. It's just fantastic. I, have you gotten really good at parking near there? Because That's there's very <laughs> limited parking. For as beautiful and open as spaces, they seem to have about five total parking spaces to allow you to w hike the dish. Yeah, and, and, they, and they have them situated in a way where you have to actually pass them and then back in. So, um, no, parking is tough. The good news is my office is about a quarter mile away, so I can actually park there and just walk over. So, so as I mentioned, you're, you're considered one of the top most experienced and likable attorneys Ooh. in Silicon Valley and some of the startups. Could you talk about a couple of the companies you've represented, you know, that, that are particularly well known? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've been very, very lucky. Um, way back when, uh, early in my career, I got involved with a company that one of your co-founding partners, Todd Francis, funded called 
um, originally computer literacy and it rebranded itself uh, into Fat Brain, which we took public in 1998 and ultimately sold to barnesandnoble.com. And from that, I've, uh, yeah, as, as I bonded with the founding team and the executives and some of the board members, I was brought into a bunch of other relationships. So I was founding counsel for Open Table, um, for Trulia, for Cloudera, for a company called Tickets Now, um, a whole bunch of different businesses. Um, and, uh, and pretty much every single one of those businesses, I you know, got involved from the day one. I incorporated the companies and saw them through their life cycle. Well, it's interesting. It sounds like you had a company in particular that was almost like a Rosetta Stone and opened up a lot of the other opportunities where you'd have entrepreneurs that would recommend you and investors that would recommend you. I think that's, I think that's the formula, and maybe it's the formula in all business, but it's certainly the formula in Silicon Valley. And it's not just, um, it's not just for lawyers. I think um, you, know, you, you work hard on a project um, with a bunch of people and you get to know those people and they get to know you and you you really do stretch your muscles and create new new tissue and inevitably that company has a life cycle um, and it, at, the, at the end of that life cycle those people go on to do other things and you stay in touch with them and they remember this was Buddy's strength, this was Rob's strength and so when they face those new opportunities and they need those strengths they call you up and it really, I, I would say that the vast majority of my career stems from maybe three or four seminal companies and the people involved in those companies. And it's interesting because the seminal company, if you were to give me the list here, you mentioned Fatbrain, OpenTable, Trulia, Tickets Now. Cloudera. If I wasn't from, or in Cloudera as well, if I wasn't from Silicon Valley, I wouldn't really probably have heard of Fatbrain. That's right. It really wasn't that famous a company, no. but some of those companies end up being this source of great people over time because people certainly have heard of OpenTable and Cloudera and Trulia and Tickets now. I think that's right. I think, um, look, you learn, I, I believe you learn the most in adversity when you're facing adversity. Um, and I think some of these companies that sort of go through a, a tough struggle and have to sort of find a unique way to go to market or find a unique way to sort of monetize their product or develop you know indirect sales opportunities when they when they're facing that kind of adversity i think you, the people involved in them learn more um, and they build courage and, and let's be honest entrepreneurship is all about courage um, so i you know if i look back at my career and i look at back at some of the other folks who i work with closely on the venture side the entrepreneur side i think many of them will point to maybe failures as the as the launching pad for their careers um, and it's not because the failure in and of itself was something that they want to brag about or refer to. It's, it's the learnings and the people that they share those learnings with in those failures. So if I was starting a company today, at what point do I try to get the introduction of Barney, Buddy Arnheim? Yeah, you know. What moment is it that I want somebody to make that phone call, send that email, send the text message, Facebook message to you to get the connection? Yeah, well, Facebook might not be the way. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think getting good advisors involved from, from the get-go is critical. And it, it's legal advisors, it's business advisors, it's, it's you know, personal mentors. I, I don't think you can be early enough. In fact, um, at the ideation stage is probably the most impacting stage. Um, so, uh, you know, I would encourage entrepreneurs that are really committed to doing something entrepreneurial to contact the best advisors they have access to as early as possible. So how does that work in being very practical? Because yeah. when people start companies, the best entrepreneurs have some sort of, I'd say, funding source. They've done something. They've saved money. Yep. They've They've put aside maybe $50,000, $100,000, and they have that money, and they also, they have to eat. Mm -hmm. So they're really thinking about saving money. So how should people think yeah. about the moment that they hire somebody like you? And I, right. I think I know the answer, but yeah. I want to ask it because people are scared of how much Lawyers a lawyer cost. is going to cost. Yeah. It, they're it's terrified. Yeah. How do you, worth every penny. How do you, but <laughs> I know. I believe that. No. I happen to believe that. But- could you talk yeah, about that? Yeah, you know, so it's really interesting. I, you know, I started practicing law in Silicon Valley back in '93, and and that that friction that we that I felt with entrepreneurs was very palpable. And um, when I finally jumped over to start the offices for Perkins Coie, 
um, in 98, I wanted to come up with a way to overcome that friction. And there were some law firms that had, had sampled with the model of engaging on a deferral basis or even taking some equity in their clients, but nobody had really institutionalized it, at least as far as I was concerned. And so when I came over to start the Perkins Coie Silicon Valley offices, that was, that was a primary agenda, is to lower the barrier for entrepreneurs to consult with us, engage with those that we felt were the most promising, and allow them to defer payment of our fees until they get some funding. So that's what you mean by a deferral basis. Exactly. We'll exactly. work with you. And it sounds like it's important for them to hit the screen because mm -hmm. you might not have the same bar that an investor has when they're about to put $10 million into a startup. Right. But to a large extent, you're thinking about deferring fees or maybe not even getting paid because they at the end of the it. day, if somebody's deferring fees and they don't get financed, you're probably going to waive those fees rather yeah. than take somebody's home or take somebody oh, yeah. into bankruptcy. Yeah, it's the company's obligation, not the entrepreneur's. And that's exactly right. It's an investment. It really is. And it's an investment of the, the fees that we're going to incur to form the company and counsel them through their fundraising and any other things that they need advice on. But it's also the time. I mean... You know, I can only get involved with a certain number of startups each year, particularly for me where I like to get really deeply involved. Um, there's a finite amount of my time. So you do, you, you hold a screen over the entrepreneurs and you find yourself specializing in areas. You know, there are, there are segments of the tech world that I feel much more comfortable with and versed in than others. So the software. Yeah. Something. Well, I think there's two important things that I think about when somebody's at the very early stage and they're putting the company together. You definitely want to get good advice before you incorporate so you don't make a dumb tax mistake. Yep. And that literally, later on, making the right tax structure could make your company, to you, the entrepreneur, worth twice as much. Easily. Easily. Sometimes and even more. It is, and, and it really isn't that much work no. to make sure you get it right. No, it's simple little things that are maybe not as well known, but, but they make a big difference. So, so that's one element. And then the second thing that I tend to mention to people is when you get that meeting with a well-known attorney, make sure you get a good night's sleep and you put your best foot forward because you are not really trying them out. They're actually trying you out, even though you may not fully be aware of that. I think that's true. I think it's a little bit of both. I, I do think, you know, we are, I'm certainly a salesman. Um, when I'm meeting people, I want them to be um, impressed and, and eager to work with me. But I'm also keeping an eye open for, is this a relationship that I think is worth spending time on? And it's not, and it's a long-term relationship. I mean, these things can, open table didn't get liquid for almost 13 years. And, and what happens in that first meeting that just catches your attention? When an entrepreneur talks about what they're doing and it's really early, what's the hook for you? Yeah, I think about this question a lot, and I have to admit that it evolves over time. But I'll give you a story, because this is one of my favorite stories, um, and hopefully it'll, it'll answer the question. So I was introduced to the two founders of Trulia. They were coming out of, they were at Stanford Business School. They were graduating in the spring, Sami and Pete. And um, they came into my office, and they said, hey, you know, when you're looking for residential real estate, there's a lot of information out there in very disparate sort places. There's listings, there's tax information, there's maps, there's pictures, there's neighborhood reviews, there's a whole bunch of stuff, but it's everywhere. And so we're, we, Pete and Sami, had this vision of bringing that all together into a single single view that would make it really easy for you to understand, capture, and, understand, uh, and examine that data. And as they were talking, I started seeing the website that they were planning to build in my mind. They were oh, so, just in your mind. They were so clear. So articulate and clear that it just popped into your mind exactly. what it would look like. And then about four weeks later, they came back with their wireframes. And I kid you not, it was exactly what I saw. And so the moral of the story is entrepreneurs need to really be able to communicate clearly what they're planning on doing. And you saw it not because of your creativity, you saw it because you were paying attention to the story they were painting exactly. for you. Exactly, just amazing orators of what they were pursuing. And, they, and what it revealed to me was, A, they're great communicators. B, they actually had thought very deeply about the problem they were trying to solve, so deeply that they could actually articulate the product, the exact features of the product they wanted to build to solve that problem. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conneybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Buddy Arnheim, who is a senior partner and chair of the Emerging Companies and Venture Capital Practice 
at the international mega law firm <laughs> Perkins Coie. So as the companies grow, what what do you actually again coming back to what do you actually do as an attorney? What are some of the problems that they face that you help with Ooh, or processes? This, yeah, this is the secret sauce. I don't know. Um, so the the life cycle tends to be form them, help them deal with their founder's relationship with the company and one another. Eventually, they're going to go raise capital. I mean, every company that we work with has at some point in the near future after formation the need to raise some capital. So we'll coach them through the process. What does it mean to raise capital? What kind of resources do they need to convey to prospective investors? How do they even approach prospective investors? Once they're talking with investors that are interested, what do the terms look like? What are they, what are they asking for? What are they going to give up? Um, after that, they start hiring people. They start building product. Um, maybe they start going to market with an MVP. Maybe they raise some more capital. Maybe they get approached with, by other companies to you know, partner or maybe sell some assets. Um, and, and once in a while, they'll get into a dispute with an employee or a partner, or they'll have somebody infringing on their IP, and they'll need some dispute um, advice. And then ultimately, these companies tend to be, because they're backed by people like you, Rob, they tend to look for an exit six, seven, ten years out, being either a sale of the business or creating a public market for their securities. And so we do a lot of M&A work and a lot of IPO work. So it sounds like there are two pieces, at least that I see, that, that comes into that. One is you have the documentation, the legal documents that have very specific legal language, which is actually more accessible to read than people realize. If you sit down and you go to read something, it's actually it follows a pretty logical thing. You just have to actually read it because you define terms before you use terms in a given document. Yep. So I find they're a lot more accessible than people realize. There's like four or five major documents around a venture capital financing. Yeah. I think they are boring as sin. So I think that's the problem. I'm not arguing with that. <laughs> I so, think uh, So you a, have that. Yeah. But that. then you also have this other element that people call the term sheet. Mm -hmm. What is a term sheet? Yeah. So when you finally do have an investor that is interested in putting some money into your company, the first thing that happens is you start talking about the material terms of the investment. How much are they investing? What are they valuing the company at? What kind of representation on the board will they have? What kind of information are you going to provide them on a periodic invest, uh, basis so they can monitor their investment? All that gets codified into a term sheet. Some term sheets are one or two pages long because there's implicit understanding about the nuances of those terms I just mentioned. Sometimes they're a little bit more detailed and they'll go five, six, seven, ten pages long. Um, but the concept is to get the material terms, the terms that matter the most on the table and agreed upon before you start creating that. The drafting box. of documents, as people exactly. call it. And how, how long are those documents, the ones that you were saying they're, are boring yeah, as sin? We measure them by their weight. <laughs> so they're, they're about an inch and a half thick. You know, the, there's, there's five principal documents when you are doing a venture financing. There's a purchase agreement that memorializes the actual purchase and makes representations from the company and from the investor at the time of the investment. Hey, we have this is our capitalization. Hey, this is the, the material contracts that we have. Hey, this is this this is these are the list of employees we have and the and what we're paying each of them. That that kind of stuff. The second document is what's called the certificate of incorporation or the charter. And that really defines the 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 economic and legal voting rights of the stock that the investors are buying. Um, the third document is called investors' rights, which are really about resale rights and information rights. Um, and then there's what's typically called a voting agreement, which dictates how the board composition will play out. Kind of a control Kind of a control document. mechanism. And sometimes it'll also uh, take away the vote on some small stockholders' shares. And then the last is restrictions on the founder's ability to sell their stock with what's called a co-sale agreement and a first refusal agreement. Yeah, it's interesting. When you start to dig into them at first, they, they feel kind of boring. And I think entrepreneurs in general, when they go through it, they're like, oh, my, oh, my God, I got to spend two weeks doing this and putting these pieces together. But the flip side of looking at it is possibly the investors are interested in that $2 million obligation you have for something in this list that people call the representations and warranties. Mm -hmm. And that is often the most interesting thing to read when you're getting to a closing. Could you talk about what reps and warranties are? Yeah. So, you know, it, it is. It's really, it, I, I will say, you know, in the venture business, when you make an investment in an early stage business, particularly if they're pre-product or pre-revenue, 
it's kind of binary, right? Either they're going to take your money and build enough value to either be successful and sell themselves or raise at least more capital to continue to fuel the business, or they're not. Um, so the economic terms tend to be pretty simplistic. At the same time, when you place that investment, it's really important to have a clear understanding of what you're buying. And for example, if you do write a $2 million check and the company has a $2 million sort of payable that it forgot to tell you about, you're going to be kind of bummed out when your money goes in and goes right back out. So the reps and warranties are basically a way to require the company to disclose itself, to open its kimono to the investors. It's like a house. It is. If it's you built a house on a former Superfund site yeah. or a place where they stored toxic waste, you probably need to disclose that at yeah. some point in the closing process. And if you don't and the buyer steps into it, they're going to be pretty pretty upset at you. Well, what, what I find interesting about this is what you're talking about. It also scales to later stages as well. So it feels to me like most times you have a transaction, whether it's an early investment in a company, later investment, or an exit, mm -hmm. you have a similar tr set of tracks. Yeah. You have the term sheet negotiation, which is relatively short, but it's all the major items. And then you have the legal diligence to get to close to make sure that if it's been sitting on a Superfund site or you don't have control of your IP, it's disclosed before you get to the final closing of the transaction right. with the big documents. And is this true at later stages or yeah. even in acquisition? What's the analogy Absolutely. from what we just talked about to when? When the company is being acquired or the later Exactly. Stage. I think they're the same process, which is you, know, you tend to, um, in the later stages where the company has, let's call it more, options, more stability, more durability. You know, in the early stages, the company has no money, maybe not even a product. It's, it, it's, the good news is there's not a lot there, usually. The bad news is the company really needs to get this financing done, and it's committed to the investor, and, and that's the path it's, it's you know, headstrong to, heading towards. Um, in an acquisition or a late-stage financing, you, know, you still have the same process where the, par the parties come to a, a heads of agreement or term sheet to sort of lay out and agree upon the material terms of that financing or that exit. And they typically then sign that term sheet. Oftentimes in that term sheet, there'll be what's called a no shop, which keeps the um, the company off the market from talking to other prospective investors or other prospective buyers. And that tends to be the highest hurdle yeah, and most frightening when you're selling a company. Absolutely, because you're committing to this particular buyer or investor that you're not going to sort of do the stalking horse game. You know that they're you're committed to them as long as they stick to the terms that you've you've sort of agreed upon, and during that time, then the investor or the buyer then looks at all this diligence and sees if there's any warts or pimples that they didn't expect to see. Yeah, and usually there are. And there goes your life. But this is where you tend to get really busy, in general, because it's when the stakes in some ways are the very highest, and at the the time where I would say the most entrepreneurial handholding is worthwhile and useful to get through some of this because you could have a moment for somebody where they might make, if you have a big acquisition, they go from having almost no money to making 20, $30 million. Yeah. yeah and I will tell you, you know, entrepreneurs um, oftentimes during that process struggle with how transparent to be to the buyer for fear that the buyer walks away or retrades on the price. And yet if they're not transparent enough, bad things can happen sooner or later. Cause then you break trust. Yes. And I think, you know, for me as a lawyer or even an early advisor to my companies, you know, the nice thing about being with a company from the formation through exit is you know a lot. Maybe you know everything. And um, and that... Oh, so you can help guide them. Yeah. Hey, you know, what about that wart that you sort of covered with the Band-Aid? I think it's time to tell the acquirer that sooner rather than later so you don't find yourself too far down the path where you're vulnerable. I also think that for buyers in the tech, you know, look, we live in, a, in, a, in an incredible place, but you see the same players across the table often. And um, I think there's some, there's, you know, what you do in one deal will reflect upon you in your next deal. And so building the trust, not just with your client, but with the other parties with whom you're transacting is also critical. This is really interesting because for venture capital investors, once you agree to a term sheet with a company, any reputable firm is going to follow through, even if there's a market change, et cetera. The one time it doesn't happen is if there's a material misrepresentation mm -hmm. of something that's not been disclosed in the term sheet. Like, yeah. what what might that type of thing be? Uh, you know, it could be um, it could be 
uh, you mentioned IP earlier. It could be intellectual uh, property. Yeah, I don't. You know, the the startup actually doesn't have rights to the intellectual property around which it's going to be growing this business, or it has some rights but not comprehensive rights. So that's a big one. We see that a lot, and I think IP hygiene is something I've gone on my soapbox quite a bit about, uh, making sure that you know you own what you own and uh, and you and you keep a nice container around it. Um, look, big payables can also be daunting, you know, uh, in, particularly in the early stage. You know, we will have startups that start and they really don't do any fundraising for 12 to 18 months, during which they've racked up maybe 100K in fees to us and maybe, you know, half a million dollars in fees to other people. And they go out and they raise two and a half million dollars and the investors at the last minute learn that of the two and a half million bucks, 20% are going to creditors or vendors. That's, that's hard. I see. And then they start thinking then it becomes also a trust issue yep. as opposed to if you're negotiating it up front, you really know how much of the company exactly. you're buying and runway and all that. So we'll have to take a break in a moment. Okay. And the final question that I had here is, what is the best practice when you think about entrepreneurs that work with you at an early stage? Because a lot of the things we talked about, you can learn about online. Mm -hmm. But I'm also guessing there are plenty of people you work with, you walk them through the basics. How do you handle stock options? There's different ways you can do stock options, et cetera. What do the best entrepreneurs do to teach themselves about structures and legal stuff so that they can make the most of the advice and leverage and earn the respect of the yeah. people who are giving them that advice? You know, there's some amazing resources online that law firms like ours and other law firms that we compete with have published to sort of help the self-learners get up to speed on what I consider to be sort of the six categories of law stuff that startups need, you know, forming a company, how to deal with founder stock, how to deal with incentivizing other people you're bringing into the business, whether they're employees, advisors, or consultants, how to deal with intellectual property, seminal, your seminal IP, and how to create good IP hygiene from day one, how to deal with those day-to-day -day things that happen as a startup, how to get payroll set up, how to get insurance, how to get a lease for a facility. And then last but most certainly not least is you know raising that seed capital. So there are tons of resources online to help you learn about those, those six categories of expected legal resource that you're going to consume as a startup. And then I, you know, I actually and people should go find that I think and read should. it, so they're educated, so they're asking pointed questions exactly. as opposed to "come teach me." Yeah. Now the other thing is, you know, some entrepreneurs pride themselves on being super creative in everything they do. I will say that if your, <laughs> business, if your business is sort of heading into this trajectory of fast growth, which is where I've specialized my um, my practice, where I've focused my practice. There's 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 times to be creative, and there's a whole bunch of times not to be creative. That's really good advice. And I'd like to come back to that and stay with us. When we're back, I'll continue my conversation with Buddy Arnheim of Perkins Coie, where we're going to talk about what it means, where you should be creative, not creative in a startup, some of that advice, and also some of the areas that he's particularly excited about investing with the other hat that he wears as a venture investor. I'm Rob Conneberry, founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Connie Beer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. I'm continuing my conversation this hour with Buddy Arnheim. He is a senior partner and chairman of the Emerging Companies and Venture Capital Practice at law firm Perkins Coie. When we left off before the break, we were hearing about what does he do when he's wearing his proverbial lawyer hat, legal hat, legal advice from all his perspective. But he's also wears a few he wears a few other hats, and one is a law professor at the University of Illinois. Could, could you tell us a little about that? Yeah, so I'm officially an adjunct, uh, which means I've taught the seminar class the last several years. Um, at the law school, and it's a it's a week long program on entrepreneurship. Um, it's rather intense. Most of the students are law students. There's a handful of business students, and occasionally we'll get some um, some engineers. Uh, the The curriculum is to walk them through starting a company, and um, and it's about three and a half hours a day for four days. They have two written projects that they have to complete, and I intersperse the the oral the lecture curriculum with guest lecturers, and I try to do it with two venture capitalists and two entrepreneurs. So folks that I've had, I had Chuck Templeton of Open Table come. I had 
Andrew Mason of Groupon come. I've had Greg McAdoo, formerly of Sequoia, come. A handful of folks. Um, my uh, my belief is that they walk out of there not being nearly as intimidated about starting a company and also getting a better understanding of this wacky ecosystem that you and I are so comfortable with. And as an adjunct professor, are the students law students or are they other students? So most of them are law students. I do get some MBAs in there and I do get some master's engineers. And are they people thinking about starting something or are they more interested in understanding how to advise people that are starting something? So I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I've had uh, some graduates of my class reach out to me for, um, to, for, to join you know, our law firm and to interview with Perkins Coie. In fact, we've hired a couple, which has been fantastic. I've had a handful that have gone off and started companies. Um, and there's a bunch that have gone into the investment world. So coming to the other hat, the investor hat yeah, and orthogonal ventures, the sole GP fund that mm -hmm. you're talking about. As an engineer, I love the phrase orthogonal. I think for a lot of people, they'd like to understand what is the difference between orthogonal and perpendicular? <laughs> well, perpendicular I think everybody intersects. knows what perpendicular is. <laughs> orthogonal doesn't intersect. It's just sort of out there. Uh, it's in a different direction. You know, it, I, it's, a, it's a game on, it's a, it's a play on sort of what interests me as an investor honestly you know I've been very lucky I've been in um, I've been, had the, the privilege of working with just some brilliant entrepreneurs from very early on and I've helped and I've seen them grow big businesses I like to think that I actually helped a bit along the way um, but as I've sort of progressed in my career it's the wacky projects that have intrigued me the most and and as you know Rob but probably your, your listeners do not you know I got roped into inadvertently co-founding a company a handful of years ago called Titan Aerospace. It's a wacky project. It was, a, you know, it was, the idea was to It's very orthogonal. It was it's very, not on the standard path. It's on a different path. It is. It is. It, it was way up high. You know, we were, still, we were building what we, what we referred to or coined as orth, uh, atmospheric satellites. So big solar-powered, perpetually flying airplanes um, that would fly at high altitude. And, uh, and it was an amazing project. Um, we, we got very lucky at the end. We sold the company to Google. Um, most, uh, all of the employees except for myself continued with Google. Um, just fascinating. And that sort of fueled my interest in doing Do some- Do you have a Google badge? No, I did not. You I didn't did not get a Google join. badge, but I you were not. a founder, and it was acquired by Google. Yeah, but I did not join Google. Did you get a Google credit card? No. Okay. No, but I, I did not. Okay. So I should probably sort of look into that. So did you did you help them save on legal fees by being <laughs> a member of the founding team, or did you actually hire somebody else? No, we. so I, I ultimately did jump in as the lawyer um, on that project and, and represented the company as we sold it. Um, it was such an important project for me. I wanted to make sure that it sort of happened the way I wanted it to happen. And what are some of the other companies you've been involved with that you're excited about? Oh, so there's one that we just recently, well, there's one that I've shared with you, and it's a it's a stealthy project, but there's a little bit on the web that I, and, and so accordingly I can share a little bit about it. It's a it's a space launch company called Spin Launch, um, and it's, I think, one of the most fascinating projects I've ever worked on. Um, the idea behind Spin Launch was to come up with a way to catapult stuff into space much more uh, cost effectively than the traditional rocket methodology and also much more responsively, meaning we could do it at, at whim. Can, could you describe what you mean by catapult? Um, I can describe a little bit. I probably can't describe too much because it's, um, again, I think it's important for the company right now to stay stealth. But um, the idea would be to impart kinetic energy through a catapult type mechanism as opposed to impart it through a blast of a rocket. Yeah. So this is something where you hear the phrase spin launch, you hear catapult, it, you think about the dark ages, and you just think about something that has a <laughs> trebuchet that might go a little bit faster. And yeah. it sounds like that's enough. So that's one that's interesting. What else are you interested in? Are you interested in space in general? I do. As you know, Rob. Is it I, in outer space? Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nerd at heart. and I'm a, I'm a sci fi fanatic. Um, and so I think we're entering into this era that some people are referring to as new space that's just fascinating. You know, the privatization of the space industry. Um, so, yeah, I've been spending a bit of time under trying to understand it and figure out what are going to be the enablers, the early enablers that really make this a real deal. Well, let's, let's talk about that a moment. If you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conneybeer. You're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111. I am here in the studio right now with Buddy Arnheim, who is a senior partner and chair of the Emerging Companies and Venture Capital Practice at law firm Perkins Coie. 
why is space interesting right now? Well, you know, if you think about it, um, it's been about 50 years since we put a man on the moon. And, um, and during that time, we've done some, I will say, NASA has done some amazing things. You know, we had the Mars rover, which was, I mean, for me, uh, an absolutely seminal moment. Um, but um, you, you might argue that the innovations in space exploration have not proceeded at the same pace as the innovations in things like personal computing or even transportation. Uh, terrestrial transportation and um, and uh, interestingly about what 15 years or so ago the X Prize was was published um, the Ansari X Prize to sort of develop a a private uh, vehicle that could make it to you know the edge of space 100 kilometers of altitude two times in I think it was a two-week period if I'm not mistaken um, and it prompted a lot of really interesting folks to do, to attempt to achieve that X prize, the $10 million Ansari X prize. And I would say, I would argue that it was that multiple competitors. It was like yeah. five different, 10 different companies. Right? It was, it was, I, I don't remember the exact number, but I think it was six or seven, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and uh, and it and it was achieved, um, and uh, and I would argue that that was the beginning of um, of this new space era, where the idea of privatization of of space uh, launch and ultimately space explora exploration became um, a reality. Well, there are, when when I think about the areas, it's one area that I actually worked before venture capital was in the space industry for Martin Marietta. And we were building commercial communication satellites. So if you think about the ones that broadcast TV, mm -hmm. it was up in geostationary orbit. It looked like it stayed in the same place above the equator. And it was used to beam down the Flintstones and Ren and Stimpy and all of our Freeze favorites. Company, all our favorite old shows. So what's happened over this time frame is there are three major applications that we see. One is Earth observation, taking pictures of the Imagine. ground. Yep. and imagery of the ground for whether it's looking at crops or number of cars in the parking lot or ships or yep. things like that. Then you have communications, mm -hmm. and that's literally updating Teledesic, which is a 20-year-old set of satellites, a mm -hmm. constellation, with modern technologies that have been advancing with Moore's Law. And then there are some people that are looking at manufacturing, as, as crazy as that might sound. And then there are the people building launch that supports all this. What, which area of space gets you particularly interested? You talked about spin launch, which you were pretty mysterious about, but yeah. what else gets you interested and excited? So I, I think the whole thing's fascinating, So, uh, but I think there are enablers, right? So launch is clearly a gating item. It is terribly expensive today to get something into space. And um, I think, I may have these statistics wrong, but I think there's something like 2,300 satellites orbiting the planet at various altitudes from geo to leo. Um, and I believe there's sort of, you know, maybe as many as 10x applications from as many as 10x more satellites sitting in front of the FCC right now. There's this there's this need, there's this pent up demand to get stuff into and space. And these are real applications because it costs big money big to get money. that approval from the right. FCC. So there's capital behind it to send 10x that number of satellites into space. And so what is driving it? So first of all, there's the miniaturization. So 10x the satellites is sort of actually, you know, what used to be the size of a school bus is now the size of a laptop. So that, that helps grow the number. But there are these real industries. There's these imaging, these sensing industries, and there's these communication industries that, that are real and, 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 uh, and feed off of the information that comes from these theoretical constellations. Um, so, we, but we got to get it in space, and um, and and so I think the first thing is how are we going to get this volume of stuff into space and and located in the right places to to then accomplish the data collection that we that these industries th thrive for or crave, um, and then once they're up there, how do you replenish them with you know the next generation or when they fall out of orbit? Well, because they're advancing so quickly. Yep that they actually have mission lives of two years, not 15 years, and that type of thing. Exactly. And it's interesting. People also ask about, do you replenish the rocket? So should you bring the rocket back, or is it disposable? And there are interesting questions, but I think to a certain extent, when you're cooking in the kitchen, you have dish towels, mm -hmm. use those over and over, 
but you still have paper towels on the roll. They have different purposes. I, that's a, a fantastic analogy. I really like that. That's exactly right. There are going to be some vehicles that we use once because that's the right way to use them. They're, they're cost effective. The, the cost benefit analysis of recycling is just not there. And then there's other things that, you know, are going to be terribly expensive and we have to find a way to reuse them. I look at, you know, the Falcon 9. It's a, it's a massive machine. This is the SpaceX Elon Musk booster, workhorse booster. Workhorse booster. He's going to recycle that thing and he's already demonstrating that, that it, that's feasible and, and going to happen. For what Spin Launch is doing, you know, we're going to be throwing up these projectiles that are relatively disposable. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually think that if you were to talk about Falcon, that would be the dish towel. Companies like Vector and others are the paper towels. What you're talking about is a little bit like the blow dryer where you push <laughs> the button and it blows air out and it works yeah. and it's very sensitive. You have to wait a little while to, to dry your dry hands your off, but it works. But not too long. Yeah, I hope it is that easy. That, yeah. uh, that would be the so what, else, what else are you excited about? Because so, it's, it's not space ventures, it's orthogonal right. ventures. No, but, but I will continue to riff a little bit on space if you'll allow me. I would love to. You know, I look at, like you mentioned manufacturing in space. I'm not involved in this company, but there's a company out there called Made in Space. You and I have talked about this. It's absolutely fascinating to me. The idea of being able to 3D print and extrude stuff in a zero or low gravity environment, um, I just, I think that's just fascinating. And it could be, Stuff like componentry that has to be used for repairing the space station, or it could be other things that, you know, in a no gravity environment, you can create um, and have interesting characteristics that you then bring down to the, to the Earth's surface. Um, so I, I think that's a, a really interesting business. And related to that is going to be, well, how do you get the raw materials up to these printers? Well, you go to the moon to get some water. There's ice on the polar cap. Uh, or you go to the asteroids and you sort of mine the asteroids. And so um, I, there's a lot going on up there that I think is fascinating. The big question is when, right? I, I, you know, I think if you spin the clock forward 100 years from now, that's probably a reality. But I'm not going to be here 100 years from now. So what happens in the next 10 years or 15 years? Well, the thing that I see for sure as an investor is the cost of launch is coming down really, really, really fast. And when you put that together with you can build things that are the size of a toaster that used to be the size of a school bus, you have this truly disruptive opportunity that's coming along that is really blowing this area wide open. And it's an area where billions and billions and billions of dollars are already spent on, I think it's well over 100 launches a year. People don't even realize yeah. it. But today, in today's space environment, there's a huge amount of commercial yeah. activity that is just for whatever reason, invisible yeah. to everybody. Massive. Which Massive. is an investor I like. Yeah. I love that right. that's, that's right. invisible. Go where the eyes aren't looking. So back to orthogonal. Okay. Beyond space, what else are you What other about? stuff do I like? So, um, you know, I uh, the, the Titan experience introduced me to the worlds of drones and autonomy. And so I've, I've, um, I've spent a bunch of time trying to figure out where as a small investor I can play effectively there. And so... Um, there's a company that I'm involved with called Skydio that's built this amazing piece of hardware um, and a software platform behind it to allow the, that drone to fly truly autonomously. You, you can actually buy it. It's commercially available. Um, you, 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 you launch the Skydio drone by just sort of handing it off. You, um, you instruct it to follow Rob Conybeare as he's trail running in Windy Hill, which is an open space preserve near here. And that device will literally follow you and it will avoid trees and branches and bugs and birds and dogs. And it is it is it is the it is what we were all expecting or hoping to see in an autonomous drone. They, this company, I remember early on, they had a public YouTube video mm -hmm. where they showed not a quad rotor drone, mm -mm. but something that looked like those RC planes that would have a <laughs> propeller at the front and have fixed wings and look like a little Cessna, but a very small Cessna, and they would fly it in an indoor parking garage. Yes, so the founders... It was a public YouTube video. Yeah, that, that, was, um, that was actually um, a drone. That was a, 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 an airplane. So the, the, one of the founders... Yeah, it was a, a, a model airplane. Yeah, model airplane. So Adam Bry, the founder, one of the co-founders and CEO of Skydio, um, used to race um, model, larger scale model airplanes. Um, 
and uh, and at MIT they did a demonstration that you could develop a software navigation platform to allow this plane or a smaller version of it to fly in an indoor parking lot. It's fantastic. So you talk about drones, talk about the robotics, similar themes that you're also interested in. Yeah. Computer vision. I do. Yeah. I. I. You know, this whole machine learning and AI uh, wave is is terribly exciting. I, I think that what we're seeing is there's some nearer term pragmatic applications of AI and then there's some far-reaching longer-term things and so I'm trying to figure out what are the nearer terms um, what are the nearer term problems that AI or ML can solve I think it's computer ML being machine machine learning learning. as a subset of artificial intelligence exactly exactly thank you and um and I think it's in computer vision. I think you know. I think you. There are a number of, of services out there right now that can look at images, whether it's video images or stag or or, um, or two dimensional images, and extract information out of that even better than we can as humans. And I like that. I and I've got a number of investments there. Um, I uh, I think there's some longer term reaching um, AI opportunities. Um, I haven't quite placed any investments that I think are worthy of sort of sharing right now. But, um, you know, our, uh, our compute power is, is growing and uh, the ability for machines to actually learn on their own um, is, is coming quick. How do you manage the two? The investing versus the law? Versus the law work. Yeah, not, I don't know if I do it well. Okay. I know. Uh, I, I enjoy it. I You just jump in and work 100 hours a week yeah. and make it all work? Yeah. I don't sleep a lot. Um, that's a criticism my wife would lend. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I feel lo- I'm very grateful for my law practice because um, it has introduced me to a whole bunch of technologies um, and industries and people that have... Um, that have taught me a lot. And, and, and so I've learned from the law practice um, how to build a company, how to get it off the ground, how to bring a product to market, how to manage a growing, a gro- rapidly growing workforce, how to deal with a shrinking workforce. There's a whole bunch of sort of tactical things I've learned as a lawyer. Um, and, uh, and I've been able to then take that into the investing world and sort of, you know, as an investor, you look at an idea, you get very interested initially, and then you look for reasons not to make the investment. I think my law practice and my law training has helped me develop that those those risk factors to flush out. So you talked about co-founding Titan. Did you co-found anything when you were a kid? Oh, a window washing business. You did? <laughs> I did. Where was this? I did. and uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, North Shore, Highland Park, Illinois. Uh, and a buddy of mine, Mike Hirsch, and I um, had a window washing business that we ran for a few summers. It was a great summer job. I mean, what, what kind of windows? Car windows? No, office windows? House which, windows. You know, we would go. We would go. We built a. You know, we we printed a flyer off of you know an old Mac, and we went up and down the streets of his neighborhood and mine, handing out flyers saying, "If you want your window washed." Give would us you a go call. door to door? Would you, you ring the door doorbell? Door? Absolutely, the doorbell? absolutely. There's nothing like door to door hustle. Um, and then, would you actually do the window washing, or do you hire somebody else to do the window so washing? So we were we were both the sales and marketing as well as the sort of operational the labor. The labor. Okay. Um, we never got to the size where we could actually hire other people, but it was a good business for a summer. You know, we would make a lot of money for kids. We'd have call our own schedule. Um, how, how did this come up? I've, I've never heard of somebody doing a window washing <laughs> business. I think it's pretty amazing. I've yeah. heard of lawn mowing, other yeah. things. Do, do windows get particularly dirty? They do. In the in Midwest Chicago? in particular, yeah. You get the summer and the storms and yeah. Um, did you compete with anybody? I, you know, we were the dominant window washers in Highland Park and Deerfield. And did you have long sticks with... No, so this is the... Or how did you... It was clean this, it off. Yeah, so so we would rock paper scissors on who would get the second story because I I just am scared of heights. Okay, and uh, so nobody wanted the second and, story. No, Mike was braver than I, and so he would oftentimes just volunteer to do the second story. But here's the other thing: we learned along the way that there was another business we could add, you know, a way to grow our revenue, which was to clean gutters as well. But to clean gutters on a second story building, you have to go on the roof of that second story building, and you have to lean down and scrape. And so that was that was the big that was. And I'm guessing you weren't exactly OSHA compliant. No, with <laughs> the harnesses, harnesses, and things like that. Yeah, the good no. old days. So did you offer offer a bundle? Was there a bundling strategy? So if you get, 
if you get the window washing for another, I don't know, 20, 30 bucks, we'll clean the gutters. Yeah, yeah. You, we would usually um, close on the window washing and then upsell the gutters <laughs> for another 20 or 30 bucks. I don't remember what our pricing was back then. But It is interesting. When you're a kid and you have those sorts of business businesses, strategies, pricing strategies, they just occur to you after right. you've been doing it for a while. There are other ways to make money with minimal extra work. There really are. You also, um, you also, because you're so young, you don't take anybody else's advice and you kind of learn the hard way. There, are, there were things that we could have done much more easily. I didn't have to walk up and down the street. We could have actually you know, put an ad in a local newspaper. We could have <laughs> <It's laughs> done a say. referral fee. I don't know. We didn't do any of that stuff. Yeah. So we've got about two minutes here. What advice do you have for people that are closer to the window washing stage of their career than the world's most interesting attorney stage of their career? Um, okay. I, first of all, um, failure is not a bad thing. Like, you know, I think, as we mentioned earlier, you learn more in, in, during adversity than you do when things are going really well. So don't don't be afraid to fail. It, it, there's nothing wrong with failure. There's a, a former venture capitalist named Peter Rip, you know, who's no longer alive. Rest in peace. Great guy who you know would would blog about how his favorite entrepreneur to back was the entrepreneur that had previously failed, um, because they had learned through that lesson and they had sort of they had the chip on their shoulder to make this next venture work well. So don't be afraid to fail. There's nothing wrong with failure. Failure is not something to look down upon. It's something to learn from. Second is entrepreneurs are courageous creatures and they're the most courageous creature. And if you're, if you pride yourself on being an entrepreneur, go for it, man. You are, you are courageous and, and don't, and harness that courage. Don't, 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 Feed the courage. Don't uh, don't try to repress it. It's it's jump in. Jump it's in. Jump in. Go ahead. Maybe climb up to the second floor to clean the windows occasionally. <laughs> but seriously, overcome your fear and actually step off the curb. Get started. And I guess the last bit of advice I would say, maybe the most important, is practice self awareness, but don't practice insecurity. Meaning, as an entrepreneur, you don't know everything, and it's important to get perspectives from other people. But at the very core, there are some decisions you're just going to have to make on your own, and and you got to know how to read your own internal navigation. You gotta, you know, stick with your gut. Well, this is great advice, and it's tough to be an entrepreneur because you get this conflicting advice. But it's about making all these things work at once. So, buddy, thank you so much for joining it us. It was today. so much fun, Rob. Thanks for having me. And for people that want to keep up with you and the work they're doing, that you're doing, where should they go? Um, you know, I'm not, I have not been a great blogger, um, or, or sort of tweeter. Um, but, uh, if you do a Google on my name, Buddy Arnheim, you'll find out my website, our, our firm's website. Um, there's not a lot of information about my investing, but you can email me and contact me and I'm happy to well, talk. Well, that's perfect. So Google Buddy Arnheim. So that just about does it for today's show. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. To follow me, I blog regularly at 280VC. Follow me on Twitter at Rob Connie. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you.